Hi everybody, I'm Peter Jacobson, and welcome to Jake's Takes. Well, I'm back in paradise, my favorite place in the world at Pebble Beach, here and I'm playing this week at the Pure Insurance Championship, impacting the first tee, which is such a wonderful organization, and I'm so happy to be joined now by the tournament director, Steve John, not just of the Pure Insurance Championship, but also the world-famous AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, of which I have been many times, I've played a few, but Steve... Mm -hmm. uh, Great to have you with us here on the podcast. What does something like putting on not just the the Champions Tour event here this week, but the AT&T involve? It's, uh, it's out of passion. I mean, we realize we know our role and responsibility in the community. Last year alone, we gave $15.6 million back to the community, more than any other PGA Tour event or Champions Tour event. And that's truly what it's about. You know, they're long days, and you just kind of forget about it because the cause is there. And, and I've got a great staff of 14 people under me that, that get it. They all get it. You probably get a lot of requests from not just pros, but amateurs and celebrities that want to come play because it's Pebble Beach. And today we get to pay, play Monterey Peninsula and the legends and leaders pro-am out here. Uh, so I would imagine that your phone is constantly burning up. The phone the phone does blow up certain times of the year. This tournament has grown so much. It's our 16th year of the Pure Insurance Championship. started off as a great little tournament, and it's just grown. I mean, it's evolved into something where there's a wait list now, just as you just referenced. So I'm getting calls from amateurs that want to play. We put them on a wait list. I get calls from the pros that, you know, if they can request an amateur. So it's turning into the AT&T. I mean, you know it, you've played it, you're part of the human chain at the AT&T, but it's, it's special when you when it's such demand to play it. I mean, I, yes, it's the greatest place on earth. Pebble Beach is the greatest place. Today, MPCC, as you like to say, MPCC, uh, <laughs> we're playing the short course today, which is the course that you play in the AT&T. You referenced the human chain. That was when Greg Norman and Clint Eastwood and Jack Lemon and I were playing in a foursome at the AT&T and we're playing the world-famous 16th hole at Cypress Point. Lemon put it on the edge in the ice plant over the cliff, and he was going to leave it. But we walked by, and Clint Eastwood says, you got to play that thing. <laughs> so we walked over, and Clint grabbed Jack's belt. I grabbed Clint, and Greg Norman grabbed me. So we had a human chain of golf safety there on the cliff at Cypress Point. It's an original painting that hangs, hangs in AT&T's house. That painting. And you were you were so kind the next year when we released the painting to the public, that was our poster for the tournament. You called in from Portland. We Skyped you in. Clint was there. And I think Huey was there. Huey he Lewis. was on the stage, your longtime partner. And that we talked about it and the audience went crazy because it's such a great story. And no, nobody believes it actually happened. And then we have a video to prove it from the history, from the uh, CBS data for us. Now, I was fortunate enough to win the AT&T yes, back in 95, which which gives me a lifetime exemption. You're always welcome. And I, you invited me to come play a couple of years ago, which I did. I wanted to play with my longtime partner, Huey Lewis, who unfortunately had a medical situation. He couldn't play. But when I got here, I was so impressed. And I told you that I have not seen hospitality set up for not just the players, but the amateurs and all the spectators like I saw here that week and the work you've done to elevate the AT&T above just the fun and the laughs and Bill Murray, Jack Lemmon, Clint Eastwood, Alfonso Ribeiro, all these people. It has, it has been an incredible undertaking by you and your staff. Well, I appreciate that. I, I played it. I played nine times in the AT&T. And when I was offered this job, um, they asked me what, what things would I do? And I said, well, I've having played in it and I was, I was involved as a sponsor at some sort. Um, I looked at, it, I said, the, the field needs to be improved 
So you got to take care of these guys. You got to take care of the caddies. And there was a little tent for caddies and the tent for the pro for the pros and amateurs was kind of substandard and it just wasn't a great experience. So I said, that's crazy. We, we, we need these players to be here and they, they want to be here, but we need to treat them right. So we just elevated that experience. And the same thing for the, for the amateurs, they're paying a lot of money to play as you well know. And we got to, we've got to take care of them too. So it's all about just improving the product every, every year we try to take it up on their level. And I don't think and when we stop doing that, I'm out. <laughs> you were you were here for the U.S. Open. I was here as well. I was here in my official capacity as a brand ambassador for Lexus, yeah. which is the official automobile and corporate partner of the USGA. So you had a chance to sit back and watch the U.S. Open. What differences did you see between the AT&T that you put on and the U.S. Open that is run by the USGA? We want pros to come to our tournament. I go out and recruit. The U.S. Open doesn't recruit. If you make the U.S. Open, you're going to play the U.S. Open. So they don't need to elevate the level of hospitality that we have. It's, they do a wonderful job. I'm not, I'm not demeaning them. I'm just saying they don't need to do what I do because I need – I begged some pros to play. You know that. It's, and they've got schedules. Everybody, there's 47 events. They can't play all of them, so they're going to skip a few. I don't want them to skip my event ever. So I'm going to make sure it's the best of the best at all touch points. U.S. Open, they're – I mean, you're going to play. You're crazy. You're going to qualify. You're going to qualify. You're going to go play. So they could put it in a pup tent with no walls. They don't, but they could. That's the difference. Yeah, the U.S. Open is one of the four majors, and I agree with you. They could put it down Highway right? I-5, and everybody would still play. Yeah. The, the the most interesting thing about playing Pebble Beach, it's a public golf course. Yes, it's expensive, but everybody I talk to, it's so iconic. Everybody wants to play, and they're scrambling for those stop spots to yeah. play at the AT&T. And, and as I said, what you've done here to elevate the event, this event, is just just incredible. Uh, what would you say is the is the most difficult aspect? Would you say probably recruiting the best players to play? That's one. I think the logistics are challenging. Three golf courses. We have to build this, you know, this village, the players' village, because that's home for the week for you and the amateurs and everyone that's playing the tournament. There's one place they go, and it has to be a safe haven because the rest of the time, as you well know, you play with some pretty high-profile celebrities. Uh, everybody's after you for autograph, for pictures, and you want to go someplace and just relax. And so we've created that safe haven. But logistically, getting around the forest, as you know, people get lost. Our shuttle vans, there's 85 shuttle vans running players all around. Timing of it, if there's a if we have a uh, rain delay at Pebble and it, maybe it's fine at at, at Spyglass, we've got to work with all that. So it's just it's really challenging, but that's the beauty of it. Like last year, the weather was horrendous, and we had that we had to deal with that. We had a hail first time was since 1963. Um, it but there's there's so many things that go into it. At the end of the day, it's it's I said at the beginning, it's all about money. That's what that's what drives me. I don't sleep. I don't care. I'll sleep later. Well, I've played in good weather. I've played in yeah. lousy weather. When you're standing on the tee at number seven at Pebble Beach, you look, you look right through the rain and the sleet and the wind. It doesn't matter. And I've said this many times because this was my first tournament when I joined the PGA Tour in 1977. I Monday qualified and I would never miss a tournament at Pebble Beach if I, if I could help it. But I've always said this is probably the most important tournament on the PGA Tour schedule. Why? The four majors are important, yes, but where else do you have a chance to play inside the ropes and get up close and personal with the individuals that support and sponsor our game? And that's why you do, in my opinion, to do one of the best jobs on tour because you put those pros with the right people. So yeah. it is marketing, it is public relations, but it's a great tournament. Yeah, but you said it. You said it, and Kelly Craft reinforced that, that every pro, this is what he said, should play golf with you before they get to go on the tour to learn what it really is truly about without those, without those sponsors, there's no tour. There's just, there's no tour. And our tournament is the epitome of that because we're the only one like it. 
And I, I think it's, he said it, I believe it. And I say it all the time about you, that you get it. And some of these guys don't. And they need to they need to understand it, recognize how important it is. They come on, it's like, whatever, no big deal. I'm five hours with the with the a Neil Booster, right? Yeah. Workday. He might just throw this logo on your shirt if you're a nice guy. If you ignore him, you're out there for yourself, probably not gonna happen. Yeah, and he just may sponsor a tournament that you may win in a couple of years. I didn't expect you to say that. That was very nice. You didn't read it exactly as I'd written it, Steve, but but I will I will forgive you on that. Uh, thanks for joining us. Good Always. luck. I know it's going to be an exciting week. It's Wednesday, uh, the, the previous week. And you're speaking tonight. I'm speaking tonight at the yeah. Legends and Leaders, yeah. which I'm honored. Thank you for yeah. asking. Thanks for, thanks for being here. It's going to be a fun night. Nine great speakers talking about the nine core values of the first tee to the eight, 78 juniors that are here and 350 other people that are participating in the tournament and their guests. So it's a great audience. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, bud. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. Fans are fired up and making sure they show it. They're rowdy and loud, not your usual crowd. It's a jungle in here. You know, I've been a pretty good ball striker my whole career, and I think one of the strengths of my game has been my driving. I've been pretty good off the tee. I hit a lot of fairways. But I always know that my first drive of the day is going to be a good one. In comfort, luxury, and in style, because I'm going to and from the golf course in my Lexus GX460. I've been a brand ambassador of Lexus now for over 30 years, and in my opinion, it's the best vehicle on the road today. Now, I may have had a few body parts replaced over the years, but that's just in my 65-year-old body. My Lexus needs nothing but routine maintenance, and that's just the way I like it. I did a piece earlier this year about the role of the PGA Tour golfer turned broadcaster, of which I am one, and we've seen so many in the game of golf, and I basically referenced you, Brandel Chambly, who joins me on the podcast right now. We talked about the criticism, which I think is unfair criticism that you've been receiving from a lot of players for your critique of their game. So I just wanted to get your get your feelings, and I know how you feel about how you approach your job, because you take it very seriously. You do a lot of homework, but how have you responded to all this criticism? I think it comes with the territory. You know, I, I know that, you know, people are sensitive to criticism, but my job is to tell the viewer what's not obvious, to tell the viewer why things happen. So in general, people are very comfortable with what happened. You know, what someone shot, how many fairways they hit, whether they won or not. People are very comfortable with that. But when you start to try to explain why something happened, people will get uncomfortable with that. They did with Johnny Miller. They do with anybody who tries to get at the bottom of why things happen. The consensus is, well, who the hell are you to tell us why? How do you know? And it's like, look, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that I've spent a lot of time in my life studying these things. I don't take it lightly. I work very hard to get at the root of a problem. And then I want to share it with my audience. Generally, I find something that is exciting to me. And then I get excited to share it with my our audience. And if it happens that I say a player misses it right because of this or left because of that or doesn't play well coming this down the stretch because of this or the other, 
that they play well because of this. Now, typically, they won't remember when I tell them why someone plays well. They'll just remember the criticism. That that's always a given it's in our minds. Given. You know, if, <laughs> if I, I could talk about you, Peter, for an hour, but if I said, you know, I don't like your hat, that's all you'll remember. Correct. And and that's just human nature. But the world that we live in, and you know this, is that social media is looking for a headline. They will take something you say, turn it into a headline. Now, as it relates to Brooks, so I was asked at the Masters. Is Brooks Kepka the best mine in golf? My answer was, I'm not willing to cede that ground to him this early in his career. I need more evidence. I think he won three majors, a wonderful achievement, an incredible achievement, but they were very similar golf courses. They didn't really test him for the miss off the tee. They were, they were pretty easy golf courses off of the tee. I said, I need to see more evidence. Now, he went into the media center and said, I got really upset when Brandel said I wasn't strong mentally. Not at all what I said. Not at all. Not even close to what I said. If you make it to the PGA Tour, you're tough mentally. There's 10,000 people trying to make it. You're really tough mentally. Now, if you win major championships, you're even tougher. If you win three of them, you're considerably tougher. But I wasn't willing to cede the best mind in golf. I think that's Tiger Woods or Bernard Langer, for that matter. Bernard Langer's had the yips his entire career. He's won 114 times. Who's better mentally, Tiger or Bernard Langer? I don't know. It's a close match, but I wasn't so... That's where the criticism started with Brooks Kepka. His father chimed in because um, the team event came around and Chase, Brooks' brother, and he were a team. And they were well up there, you know, top five or three, I think. And, you know, it came to me and I said, look, I personally don't think that any tour player should be allowed to pick another tour player and say they get a tour card. I understand they can, right? At the team event, they both get a tour card. I mean, they both get an exemption. I personally don't think that's fair. I think that if you're going to give an exemption, that person should have a tour card already because it's, it's, it's not a, a fair representation of the talent it takes to win a tournament in a tour event. He chimed back at me that Brooks, that Drew Love got all these sponsors exemptions and I never say anything. I said, look, I wasn't complaining about the sponsor invite. Sponsors can invite anybody they want. It's their party. They get to invite it. And I love that about that. You know, I think sponsors' invites are amazing. Who doesn't like Steph Curry playing in an event? Or Tony Romo. Or Tony Romo. Who doesn't like that? That's amazing. If they go on to win the event, they absolutely deserve a tour card. They've done something extraordinary. They've beat the best players in the world. These are not analogous. But Brooks' father, and again, I get it because he just reads the criticism and thinks that I'm taking a shot. When it, in my view, I'm just doing my job. And just to make the distinction clear with everybody, I do play-by-play. In other words, I sit in a tower, I sit in an 18th tower, and I talk about Brooks Kepka or Davis Love or Jim Furyk, and I basically recall the shot and talk about the shot they played. You have a much different job, and I think it's much more difficult job because you're you have to form an opinion an objective opinion based on your judgment the facts presented to you and that's where some people get upset i've sat with you on the the uh, live from desk before and i do find it difficult and i'll be very honest with you i find it difficult to criticize players because i'm a player you're a player and i want to make it very clear brandle won on tour i won on tour so we have been in those shoes we understand how that is but i want everybody to understand that you're paid to give your opinion 
And I think what you say is fair. Well, thank you. I, uh, again, you and I have different jobs. Roger Maltby and I have different jobs. My, my job, I mean, I sit somewhere where every two minutes someone says, why did that happen? Who won? Tell me why they won and tell me, are they then go on or going to go on and have an exponentially greater career because of this paper? So you have to come up with, I have to spend a lot of time to come up with an answer that makes sense. And then you support it in the best you can. And the better you support your answer, the angrier people get. And I just want everyone to understand that whether you're Tony Romo going from being quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, now he sits next to Jim Nance and calls football, or whether it's Brandle Chambly or Frank Nabilo or Peter Jacobson or Noda Begay, it isn't as easy as just sliding from different chair to another chair because you have to approach it objectively <clears throat> and honestly. So let, let me just uh, uh, ask you a question. Who are you looking at for 2020 on the PGA Tour? Well, there's three players. And when you say, who am I looking at? There's a lot of ways you can take that. I'm looking at three players in the top 10 in the world who haven't won a major, who could easily win majors this next year. And that's Patrick Cantley, Xander Shoffley, and of course, John Rahm. John Rahm has everything. You know, he does get a little quick. Uh, he, he gets a little quick in his game on Sunday. It hasn't held him back. I mean, he's won eight times in his very early career. And he has everything. He has the aggressiveness of Phil Mickelson. He has great accuracy, uh, great confidence. So, you know, I look at John Rahm to have a breakaway year. I also look at a fabulous rivalry between Brooks and Rory. Wherever Rory needed to get mentally to play his best golf in majors, which he has not done since he won the PGA in 2014, I think he figured out how to get there at the Tour Championship after he got beat by Brooks at the WGC uh, FedEx St. Jude. So I, I think we're going to see better golf out of Rory in the major championships, which which is going to be, you know, it's amazing. Golf doesn't have rivalries very often. One never materialized with Tiger. The last one that probably existed was Watson and Nicholas or Trevino and Nicholas. I can't think of another one, a real rivalry. So this one has, they're both young. They're both in the prime of their careers. And it has all the, the potential for a great rivalry, which would be tremendous this next year. But as you know, going from being a winner on tour to being a consistent winner on tour to contending and then winning in majors, there are definite steps like going up a staircase. And when you look at that rarefied air where we talk about Nicholas and Kepka and Tiger and Faldo and Norman, it, 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 it's, it's a small room that houses these people. And I think that the job you're doing, I'm a big fan of yours. We've played golf together a long time. So I know that this is going to be great for our viewers or our, I should say listeners, not viewers. <laughs> I'm used to viewers like you are. But I just, I wanted to be able to get your side of well, this. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that. I think anybody that's listening right now just has to understand that when they're watching Brandle or they're listening to Brandle, it's your opinion. And everybody's entitled to your opinion the last time I checked. <laughs> it is. It is my opinion. And, and listen, I, I, I feel like I'm an advocate for the players. Uh, I think teachers, some teachers get upset with me. A lot of my good friends are teachers, but teachers get upset with me generally because I believe in the, the discovery process of athleticism. Great athletes will discover. Players don't generally learn from teachers. Teachers learn from players. You start to go look at, the, you know, look, nobody taught Fosbury the Fosbury flaw. He went out and came up with it on his own, and every teacher tried to discourage him from doing it. No one does it any differently now. Athletes innovate, and then teachers learn from that innovation, generally speaking. How about, how about Matthew Wolf? Or back when I started Miller Barber or Jim Furyk, or now this young Matthew Wolf, everybody tried to probably talk him out of that backswing. 
But take a look at his impact position. It's as good as anybody in the game. Yes, we learned a lot from, look, people learn a lot from Miller Barber. I mean, it's a hell of a move. And I think we're getting a clearer insight. I honestly think that social media is working like peer review for teaching. And teaching's needed peer review for a long, long time. It's been based mostly on marketing. Now it's based mostly on success. When you look at a Matt Wolf, what you see in Matt Wolf is elements of Jamie Sadlowski's golf swing. He learned... His teacher learned from watching Jamie Sidlowski swing a golf club. You're talking about a guy's my size. He's five foot nine and a half. He weighs 150 pounds, 160 maybe, and he swung the club 150 miles an hour. Now he got he recruited as much energy out of his body as anybody ever has in the history of golf. And how did he do that? With very specific micro moves in his golf swing that recruits most of the power that he's capable of recruiting. Matt Wolf learned from that, and that's why we see. What Matt Wolf said, we learn from Jack Nicholas. We learn from Trevino. We learn from we learn from these great players. You know, Hogan, Sneed, Nelson, none of them had teachers, really. They taught each other. They learned by trial and error. And I think if if you know, I love teaching. I love the study of the golf swing, but I also believe in the genius of self-discovery. Give athletes some time on the range and they'll do some things you couldn't have imagined. Well, I knew it would be interesting talking to you, Brandon. Always great to see you play well this week here at the Pure Insurance Championship. And thank uh, thanks for joining us. Peter, thanks. We're coming back to a place where you won. And I don't know if you know, you when you won here, the very next week of San Diego, I was playing my rear off, so I got paired with you. And it was one of the funniest things. I'm just going to tell you. Everybody knows how funny you are. But you were winning this golf tournament. It came down late on Sunday. You took a practice swing with a divot. It flew up, hit this lady in the face. And, and it, it was like this moment where nobody knew what to do. And you go, everything's interactive these days. And everybody broke. <laughs> Up, and then you pitched it a foot, and I was like, "Golf can't be that easy." Oh my you God. made it look easy. Well, thanks, Brandel, right. and uh, pleasure. Play well this week. Thanks so much. I don't play as many PGA Tour events anymore, or, or PGA Tour champions tour events for that matter. But when I do, I'm always traveling with my golf clubs. When I'm traveling with my golf clubs, that means that they're in my club glove. It's one of the most dependable pieces of luggage I've had my entire career. And players like Brooks Kepka, Ricky Fowler, Jason Day, Rory McIlroy, on and on and on, they trust club glove as well. You know you want to arrive safely, but you want your clubs to be there as well. And they usually do. Thanks to my club glove. They can eat you up and maybe wear you out. They will cheer you and they'll boo you while you're staring in doubt. You can try to ignore it, but they're gonna get their way. They'll just scream louder. They've been doing it all day. It's a jungle in here and we all know it. I've got the greatest job in the world because I get to play with so many cool people, interesting people. And I just enjoyed a round of golf today at Monterey Peninsula Country Club with the former vice president of the United States, Mr. Dan Quayle. Dan, it uh, was great to play with you again. We've done this in the past, and I'm impressed with your swing still. Well, uh, you gave me a a couple good tips. Uh, The swing is a little bit uh, rusty. You know something, Jake? The older we get, the harder it is to turn. (laughs) I mean, turning back. Is, is difficult and turning through is really difficult. I keep telling myself, get through it. So for some reason, the hips, the back, and everything 
just don't want to cooperate. I love to tell the story. You and I played together when you were the sitting vice president of the United States. We played at the Phoenix Open. And on the very first tee, when they introduced me, I teed off from the back tees, the pro tees. And when they introduced you, you had to move forward. And you said, I'm not, I'm not going to move forward. I'm going to play back here with you, which you did all day long. And you had to leave early because you had, you had pressing duties, obviously, for the country. But you were one over par through 15 holes from the pro tees. And I tell everybody, because that's an impressive round of golf. I, I played uh, very well that day, and that was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, Jake, I could play, I could play golf and run the country. So I, I, I was dual-hatted, and I did, I did, I think both of them pretty well. Well, you've played in the American American Century Celebrity Championship at Lake Tahoe a few times. In fact, we had dinner there last year, uh, and it, that's a great event where you get people from all over. The athlete world, the actor world, the political world to come together. It's a fun event. It's a great event. And they, this year, I think, had something like 60,000, 65,000 people, uh, it, which is a huge crowd. And that part of the country is really good for me because there are a lot of Republicans hanging around there. <laughs> I mean, there, I, you got to look really hard to find uh, too many Democrats in that Tahoe, Reno area. It's a good part of the state uh, and a good part of the country for me. Now, I know you've played uh, you played in the event with Charles Barkley a couple times. Now, Charles is an amazing individual because on the range, he doesn't have that yippy-looking swing. But on the course, it gets a little bit ugly. Well, I've played with Charles in these celebrity tournaments uh, for many years. And 30 years ago, he could break 80. He was a pretty good uh, player. And we'd, we'd end up playing uh, with each other. And one of the funny times at the, uh, it was at uh, John Elway's celebrity tournament in Denver, Johnny Bench was giving him a lesson. You know, Johnny likes to give a lot of lessons. Yeah. I mean, and so he made Charles get up there with a driver and hit it with his eyes closed, a driver. And he's just started right striking it right down the middle, the stripe right down the middle. And he said, why don't you just go out and play like that? And he, he didn't. But he gave him a tip, just swing with your eyes closed. I don't know if I could do that. Now, we're here uh, on behalf of the Pure Insurance at the First Tee Championship. And can you imagine how how much the First Tee has grown? And I don't know, was it been 20, 25 years, what it's doing for the youth in this country? You know, the uh, young people that participate in the First Tee, they're very blessed to have this opportunity. <clears throat> they get to play you know, great golf courses. But they learn the core values of life, like integrity and hard work and discipline and things of that sort. So they come out ahead. It's a win-win situation. Plus, they get to enjoy the game of golf, which you and I know is just really so much fun. Meet so many great people like yourself and others. Uh, I always ask myself, if I didn't play golf, what would I do? Just go to the movies all the time? <laughs> I don't, it's, it's, it's a wonderful sport. And I've Try to get my kids to play more. My two boys are, my daughter actually has the best swing of the three, but she's got three kids and she just doesn't ever, ever play. But golf's been very good for me throughout my whole life. Well, I'm biased as you are. I think golf is the greatest game because it teaches the kids exactly as you said, sportsmanship, judgment, integrity, honesty, self-reliance. And that's, uh, that's something that we need to teach our young kids today. So, Mr. Vice President... It was great playing golf with you today, riding in the car with you, and watching you play beautifully as always. Well, I try to 
playing as, as well as I can, which uh, some days is good and some days not so good. But I appreciate uh, the instruction, appreciate uh, the encouragement, and I'm going to hang in there. I'm not going to give it up. Thanks, Dan. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Jake's Takes podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Jacobson. These have been my takes. What are yours? What are yours?